0: Well, the sobering realities of life, particularly of hell, was a topic of conversation among two well known Scottish pastors. I've heard on several different occasions a conversation that took place between a a Scottish pastor named Andrew Bonar and his fellow companion Robert Murray McShane. These men were great friends. They prayed with one another, they prayed for one another every Saturday night. They prayed for their ministry the upcoming day. They constantly spoke with each other about their ministries. And on one occasion, they were talking about the realities of life, the realities of death. And uh, Robert Murray McShane asked Andrew Bonar, he said, so what text did you preach on this past Sunday? And Andrew Bonar replied, he said, the wicked shall be turned into hell. Psalm 9, verse 17 what he preached on, trying to seek to turn people's hearts to think of the future. And McShane then responded in typical fashion, which is really the key to the introduction of my sermon this morning. He said, and did you preach it with tears? If you're going to preach on hell, did you preach about it with tears? Because tears is what that great subject really requires. Too often our understanding of the realities of life are merely abstracted. We can think about and speak about eternal matters like heaven and hell without even feeling them. I say that because I know that I can. But you know, God can't speak without feeling. God knows full well what will happen with souls when they die. Particularly with those who will spend an eternity in hell for rejecting the gospel. He knows full well what condemnation will mean. And Jesus knew it too. Nobody spoke as strongly of hell as Jesus did. He described it as a fiery furnace in Matthew 13. He described it as a hot, agonizing flame in Luke 16. In Matthew 25, He described it as a, a place of eternal fire. Eternal punishment were His words. A second death. Jesus preached the realities of hell because He knew where people would go if they failed to repent. And yet Jesus also spoke tenderly. He wasn't a hellfire brimstone preacher in the sense of just banging the pulpit and saying you're going to hell. He spoke tenderly. Sinners loved to be around Him because He gave a message of hope, a message of glory. Heaven is a glorious place worth far more than any other treasure you might store up here upon this earth. And that's the balance of Jesus. He could speak on the one hand out of His mouth strong condemnation, And yet it comes with a tender, compassionate heart. Speaking of hell, with tears. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 23. If you're not there, I invite you to open your Bible there. Matthew 23, we're going to look, Lord willing, at the last three verses of this chapter today. And in these verses, Jesus is... Strongly condemning, has strongly condemned in chapter 23, has strongly condemned these Pharisees for their hypocritical lifestyle. And he condemned them. He said, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Do you remember, as I've told you, that is a strong message. It's not good when Jesus would say, Woe to you. It is bad. And when Jesus said this, he didn't say it with a smile on his face Woe to you, you wicked slime. You're getting exactly what you deserved. That wasn't the heart of Jesus at all. The heart of Jesus was saddened when He pronounced these things. He didn't get some sadistic thrill from these words. They didn't give Him some delight. They gave Him anguish of heart. Jesus wasn't a cold-hearted judge executing judgment upon these people. just saying, Condemned! Next! Condemned! Next, condemned. Next, it's not Jesus. Jesus was a soft-hearted Savior, expressing His love and compassion to those who would have none of it. And here's how He expressed it in verse 37, 38, 39. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. title of my message this morning is A Heart for the Lost. Here's Jesus with lost people expressing a great heart for them. I want to give you four characteristics of a heart for the lost. First, a heart for the lost is persistent. I get this from this one word in verse 37. Often. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Often simply means many times. It's persistent. It goes again and again. And I think... I would have you think about the ministry of Jesus, how often He extended His grace and compassion to these scribes and Pharisees. I mean, they heard Him speak on the mountainside. They were there when He spoke the Sermon on the Mount. They heard Him speak in their synagogues. Luke 4 records, He went back to Nazareth and spoke the good news of the Gospel to them in Nazareth. They heard Him speak in the temple... Which perhaps right here, where these words are said. They heard him speak in the fields, in the open air. Remember, they caught him picking grain on the Sabbath, his disciples. He was there in the open field. He was out there many times, many different places. He spoke in many different cities. Paran, which is the region across the Jordan, Matthew 19, he was there. He, he did great miracles, preaching his great compassion to Chorzin and Bethsaida and Capernaum he spoke in nazareth his hometown and in jerusalem he spoke many words for he sent his disciples to all the cities of judah and israel telling them of the message the kingdom of heaven is at hand spreading it out in fact he also people came to him from these cities came to him from galilee came from decapolis came from jerusalem came from judea came from beyond the jordan his ministry to israel was repeating, repeat, repeated and recurring. His was a message of compassion and mercy and kindness, offering the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit, who are gentle, merciful in heart, who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And Jesus said, Upon these people will come incredible blessing. He taught people how to live. He taught people what to seek after. He taught people how to pray. He taught people how to forgive. He fed the multitudes... 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. He healed. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk. He cleansed the lepers. He gave hearing to the dumb. And He preached the gospel to the poor. If anyone had ever had an opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel, it was the people of Israel and Judah. If anyone ever had an opportunity to see proof that Jesus was the long-expected one, it was the people of Israel and Judah. For three long years, Jesus ministered to these people. He was persistent in His ministry, constantly going out to them and speaking to them. But time after time after time, though His message was clear, and though He demonstrated His great compassion and kindness, He was rejected. But He persisted. He didn't stop the first time. He kept going on. He didn't stop the second time. He, he had many, many encounters with the scribes and Pharisees and continued to pour grace and continued to pour mercy and continued to shower forth a message of hope. And they would have none of it. To use biblical language, Jesus was despised and forsaken of men. And I ask you, why did Jesus continue in His labor to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? I mean, that's what He called them. In Matthew 10, verse 6, He called them. They are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But that's what we went to. Why did He continue to work and labor for these people? I think He had a heart for the lost. I think He had a heart for them. And I simply say to you, when you have a heart for a lost soul, you too will go after him or her. You'll go again and again and again. You'll be persistent. You'd be the widow knocking at the judge's door. Say, God, please, God, please. The reason why we don't go again and again is because our hearts are cold towards those who are lost. Second point, heart for the lost is persistent. Heart for the lost is willing. It comes straight from the words of Jesus. He says here in verse 37, I wanted to gather your children together. It was his desire. It would have given him delight is what he said When Jesus preached to the people of Israel, it wasn't because He was under some sort of divine obligation simply to preach to them because His Heavenly Father told Him to preach to them. He didn't preach simply from obedience. He preached from a love for these rebellious people, a heart for them, wanting to gather them. He could do no other than teach the Word of God in truth to them, and His desire was to gather them to Himself. Now those of us who have come to know and love the doctrines of grace know that our salvation is entirely dependent upon God. Romans 9.16 says that salvation does not depend upon the man who wills the man who runs, but it depends upon God who has mercy. When a sinner turns from his wicked ways, it's only because the Lord moved in his heart first to change his nature, to allow him to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And yet... Believing that, we must never let our heart be cold toward those who are lost. I would say that we also never ought to believe that the heart of God is cold towards those who He will eventually judge. If there's any proof of this, it comes right here in Matthew 23. I mean, for 36 verses, Jesus has condemned these scribes and Pharisees under no uncertain terms. And yet here in verse 37, hardly without taking even another breath, Jesus puts forth His heart felt willingness to see Jerusalem saved. I mean, that is what this text means. That's what says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you to myself. wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks. See, when Jesus condemns, it's not with a cold heart. When Jesus condemns with a soft heart, in Ezekiel 18 we read that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He knows what's going to go upon them, and he doesn't. He doesn't like delight in that. Like, oh, now they're going to burn. He's not a torturer. He has a heart. There are those who might well quote, "Hey, Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hated." But I ask you, does God have only love for Jacob and only hate for Esau? Did God have only love for Jacob when he deceived Esau into forfeiting his birthright? Did God have only love for Jacob when he deceived his father Isaac into blessing him rather than Esau? Did God have only hate for Esau when Esau chose to be gracious to Jacob rather than killing him as Jacob feared? I think the the emotions of God are far more complex than all love or all hate. I don't believe that God has all love for Jacob and all hate for Esau. And we know what this is like. I mean, I want you to imagine yourself a jury member in a murder case. The testimony comes out. You've been selected. You've been placed in this jury. You're sitting there in the trial. The lawyer then is examining what took place. And as testimony comes out, you find that a man was out drinking one night. He had a few too many beers, hopped in his car for his ride home. On the ride home, he swerved his car across the the middle line, smack right in front of a car that was coming opposite him, killing a woman and her three children, leaving a man to bury his wife and three children as they were out grocery shopping. As often the case the drunk man lived. And the testimony comes back out on the defense side. You find out this man's a good man. He worked in the local factory, rarely missing a day of work in 12 years he'd been there. He was well-liked by those at work. People always spoke up about him. And time after time, you hear the testimony, what a good guy he was, how he liked him, how he really helped. His neighbors found him to be always joyful and happy and helpful, especially the single mother who lived down the street. He really had a ministry to her and really sought to help her with anything he could. He had three children of his own. His wife dearly loved him. In fact, as more testimony comes out, you find he rarely drank any alcohol at all, but recent unexpected illness of the four-year-old little boy had brought some overwhelming hospital bills and he just wanted to escape it all one night and that's what drove him to the bar. Now I ask you, as a jury member, what are you feeling inside of you? Are you feeling hate towards this man who, who, who killed this wife and these three children? Or are you feeling love to this man who's a good family man, a good worker? You feel both, don't you? And as a jury member, what are you going to do? You'd better convict him. He was guilty. And he deserves whatever the law of the land is, whether it's death or life in prison. But as you pronounce the the guilty verdict upon him, what's your heart feeling? Does it not ache? You're going to rip this man away from his family... For life, perhaps. Would your heart ache for the wife and children who have to visit dad in prison, never being able to touch him again? Would anything in your heart long for this man to go free and back to his family? I think that's God's perspective of the lost. Certainly the scribes and Pharisees and those who are lost have sinned against God. And to be sure, any sin against an infinitely holy God is deserving of infinite punishment. And for God to be true to His justice, He must punish their sins for their refusal to repent. But listen, God isn't only justice. God's also compassion and kindness and grace. And the merciful heart of God will judge. But He will judge with pain in His heart. I think that's the point here of Matthew 23, verse 37. He's putting forth that heart towards these people. He was willing, but they turned his back on him, and that was the last portion of the verse. It says, You were unwilling. And know this the reason why anybody would be in hell is because they refused to repent the glorious news, the gospel of Christ. When somebody's in hell, it's because they were unwilling what jesus said they were unwilling well the heart for the lost is persistent it's willing here it is thirdly it's tender jesus here uses the illustration of a hen gathering her chicks right how often i wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings this imagery is used several times in the bible and every time it means safety and protection Safety and protection under Mother Hen's wings. For instance, Psalm 17, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Right? Protect me. Keep me. Psalm 36, verse 7 How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Right? We take refuge in his wings. It's a it's an endearing, protecting metaphor. Psalm ninety one verse four. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. And Psalm ninety one is all about God's protection upon you. But notice this term of, of protection is a tender term. It's the nourishing and cherishing care of a of a mother hand. And perhaps you've all seen this. I've seen mothers do this. I've seen my wonderful wife do this with our children, right? The child's in danger or afraid. Maybe there's this dog barking. What do they do? The children run up into mom's arms. Or maybe there's a stranger at the door. Right? They're scared. And they go, who is that? Who is that? Comes right into her arms. Maybe there's a loud noise and they run to mom. That's what this imagery is talking about. Running, cradling the child in her arms, comforting her, assuring assuring the child that all is well. And notice how the protection is. It's warm and it's endearing. It's not simply dealing with their fears. You know, it's not taking, oh, let me deal with that dog, you know, and putting the dog in the kennel. It's not, oh, let me deal with that visitor and slamming the door on the stranger. Right? It's not here. i got some earplugs. Here, put this in your ears so you won't hear it anymore. I think those are cold protections. But this isn't. This is a loving, tender, bringing close and protecting. And Jesus said on many occasions He wanted to tenderly love and protect and guard them. The question comes, protect them from what? I think it's clear. It's coming. the coming wrath of God. It's salvation that He's talking about here. Jesus pictures the offer of salvation as a mother hand protecting her chicks. And indeed, this is salvation. Finding refuge in Jesus. That's what salvation is. Finding refuge in Jesus. I love how the Bible gives various... Pictures and illustrations of saving faith, sometimes it uses the imagery of birth. Right? You need to be born again. Sometimes it gives the imagery of needing a new heart. Sometimes it uses the imagery of, of drinking from the waters of life. And this morning, the metaphor is, is, is here, running into the safe arms of Jesus. And in all the different illustrations of salvation, always a little bit different. Right? Being born again implies like a new start to your life. Receiving a new heart implies the necessity of changing from within, not from outside, from within that bleeds out like we saw last week. Drinking from the waters of life, right, implies a refreshing, life-giving aspect of our salvation. And yet here with the loving wings of Jesus, we see a tenderness about Him. Fleeing the danger, running into His loving arms, and I think that's the point. Jesus has a tender disposition towards those who are lost. As hard as he is on the one side, he still has a softness on his side too. And this, by the way, is especially surprising when you consider who these people were and what these people had done. At least my fourth characteristic of a heart for the lost. A heart for the lost is persistent, is willing, is tender, and here it is, is far-reaching. By this, I simply mean that such a heart will reach out to the worst of sinners... Consider the ones to whom Jesus was speaking. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that did everything right. Is that what he said? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? The city that loves God and His commandments. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that helps the widow and helps the orphan. None of those are right. It's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Or Jesus could have said it this way Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who rebels against God, who hates what God says, who kills those to speak who speak on behalf of God. It's you, Jerusalem, that I have a heart for. This is the city that Jesus is lamenting a wicked and sinful city. Oh, they may not be sinful in the sense that Sodom and Gomorrah, who pursued the lust of their flesh, was sinful. Oh, they may not be sinful like Tyre and Sidon, who was in the lusts of their materialistic, worldly treasure-seeking. They were sinful in the sense that they refused to hear the clear message of God, which came in many portions and in many ways. To many generations, many people in Israel heard the message, the gospel of grace... But here, when God spoke in His Son, the rejection continued on. And you know what's interesting? I believe that their sin, Jerusalem's sin, was far worse than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon. Do you believe that? Do you think so? Do you think the people in Jerusalem were worse sinners than Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember back in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus cursed the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for failing to believe all the wonderful miracles they did. Remember that? What did He say? Jesus said that they would face greater condemnation. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented. If the miracles I did in you would have been done in Sodom, they would have repented. And we can only conclude that greater condemnation comes from greater sin. And here's why I would say. Religious sin is the worst sin of them all. We may not think that because we think that someone's upright and moral. That's pretty good. But we saw Jesus condemn the most upright and moral people in the world. Far worse than he condemned the tax gatherers and the harlots and the prostitutes. I think it's precisely because they sinned against all knowledge and all understanding. Have you ever considered why Paul considered himself the foremost of sinners? 1 Timothy 1.15 He said, I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the chief. I'm the first. I'm the head. I'm the top. Do you know why? Is it because nobody sinned worse than Paul? I think certainly you can probably find some people who are, you know, mass murderers. Paul calls himself a murderer. But you can find people who killed many more people than Paul. You can find people that blasphemed far worse than Paul. You can find people that were violent aggressors far worse than Paul. But I believe that Paul's sin was greater than anybody because he sinned these things in the fullest knowledge that they were wrong. The fullest knowledge of anybody. Paul was like the upper echelon, the Albert Einstein of the society. He was brilliant, trained in all these different languages, trained in all the religious things, trained as a Pharisee, and yet he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And for that reason he considered his sin the worst. And I think Jerusalem's sin here is worse. Right? Let's get it in our mind that the one who attends church his whole life and yet has no heart for God is a greater sinner than the Sodomite who is in San Francisco. Children especially, you need to learn this, that your capability of sinning is far beyond... What many have a possibility of sinning. Because you're hearing the truth time after time after time. And these are the people that Jesus reaches out to. These are the people that knew the Torah better than anyone. Yet they rejected the greatest revelation. Though the prophets were sent to them, they killed them. And and though Jesus went constantly, willingly, tenderly and sought it out, they still rejected Him. They're the greatest sinners. But it shows the extent to which Jesus has a heart for the lost. And I simply say this, that there is no sinner who is beyond the heart of God. If these are the greatest sinners, if Jesus still had a heart for them, I would contain, contend that Jesus has a heart for all sinners, regardless of the extent of the sin. And maybe you're here this morning and think your life's beyond hope. And you think, well, God's not going to forgive me. If, if Jesus was willing and wanted and desired to gather Jerusalem, would He not want and desire to gather you? You have every opportunity right now to cry out to Him who's able to save to the uttermost. Well, you know, the thing that shocked me about about this passage in my study this week is that Jesus expressed these things to those who'd already been condemned. I mean, it's not like Jesus held out last hope for these scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus had already condemned them. In verses 13 to 36, without any doubt, condemning them, condemning These were hell-bound people. And Jesus still had a heart for them. In fact, verses 38 and 39 remove all doubt about how final was their condemnation in Jesus' mind. Look at verse 38. It says this, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, it's a clear illustration, illusion from Jeremiah twenty two. In Jeremiah twenty two, Jeremiah was speaking to Jerusalem, the city. And he warned the people of Jerusalem to do justice and righteousness. He warned the people not to mistreat the stranger, the orphan, or the widow. And if you do this, you'd have great blessings, right? Kings will enter your gates. These kings will come and sit on David's David's throne. The kings and the servants and the people will be riding in chariots and horses. It will be great victory and great celebration and great prosperity if you do these things. And yet the warning comes in Jeremiah 22, verse 5. If you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. And that's exactly what Jesus said. You've forsaken these things, therefore your house is being left to you desolate. A.D. 70, the Romans came, utterly destroyed the city, scattered the Jews throughout all the world. There's no place for them anymore. Until they gathered back in the land only recently. And the Jews, these past 2,000 years, have faced tremendous persecution ever since the time that they rejected their Messiah. It's because of their rejection that Jesus said, Your house is being left to you desolate. And verse 39, we get the same sense as well. Jesus said, I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's like my time with you is finished. And you're not going to see me again until you, you say this. And maybe this is a familiar thing. Children, have you heard this before? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Yeah? Psalm 118, verse 26, where it comes from should ring in your ears this is what the city of Jerusalem sang when Jesus came into the city they were singing Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest a hymn of conquering praise to the conquering Messiah who's come it's a world it's a hymn that the world will sing when Jesus returns all the world will sing his praise accept or not Jesus Paul said in Philippians "To Every knee will bow, whether forced or delightful. And Jesus said, Listen, you're not going to see me again until I come back again, and then you'll see me. And then you'll be forced to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a bit like the last words of Jesus at His trial. In Matthew 26, 63, the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, You said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, you said it, I am. And the next thing you're going to see, you're going to see me coming in clouds of great glory, consummating my kingdom. And I think verse 39 here is saying, you're without hope. You're not even going to see me again until I come back again. Their day was over, they were lost in their sin. But as Jesus looked back upon their dealings with these lost people, He still had a heart for them. I mean, does that shock you? I mean, we we think this. We can have a heart for somebody who's lost now, but they might be found. Right? We can have a heart for the prodigal son who's off because, you know, he might come back. But what if you knew that that person would never come back? That's what Jesus did. He knew they would never come back. What if you knew they would never come back? Would you still have a heart for them? Jesus still had a heart for those people. My question for you is this. What's your heart for the lost people around you? Now I want you to think of um, maybe people in your life who you think are entirely out of the reach of God. Particularly probably family members. You see them often and often. Maybe you've spoken to them. Maybe they know. You can can hear the judgment of God already pronounced upon them. They've sinned high-handedly against all knowledge. No conscience toward evil. Totally unwilling to flee to the open arms of Christ. They're on the path to certain doom. Can you think of those people? Now I say, do you have a heart for them? Are you persistent with them? Are you willing with them? Are you tender with them? And do you realize that God's grace extends to the worst of sinners? In fact, it was read Luke 15, right? The prodigal son. That's why I had it read. Luke 15, here is the heart of God right? that would go and seek. And the prodigal son is off. And when the prodigal son, the worst of sinners would come back, what's the Father's heart? Love and joy. More rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. I think that illustrates the heart of Jesus that we ought to have for the lost. And for those of us who know Christ, we ought to just be, be thrilled With the love that the Father has for us, right? Well, Charles Spurgeon once preached upon this text of Scripture. The title of his sermon was this: "What Jesus Would Do." Sound familiar? In fact, children, I've got a picture there of Charles Spurgeon, and he's wearing a bracelet, right? What's on his bracelet of his hand? Do you guys see it? You finally have you seen that? What does it say? WWJD, that's the sermon that, that Charles Spurgeon preached from this passage. What Jesus would do. His was WJWD, but he missed the marketing. Maybe if he'd have switched those around, he could have marketed it a bit better. I'm not sure. But I believe, what would Jesus do? Here he would do. He'd have a heart for those who are lost. And may I say, Rock Valley Bible Church, may we have a tender heart and compassion, even for those who are lost and dead in their sins. That would be like the heart of Jesus. That would do like Jesus would do there are lessons for us to learn from the heart of Jesus toward those who are perishing. And may we have His heart as well. Let's pray together. Oh God, how I long for a a greater heart for the lost. I long that You would show me about the extent to which Christ came and died. He died for lost people. He died for us when we were haters of God. We were insolent, arrogant, and boastful. He died for us when we were sinners. He died for us when we were your enemies, O Lord. And it's to his enemies, even here, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones who are always contrary to the plans of God, that Jesus extended his arms. Jesus expressed his love towards them. Even in a lost estate with no hope. I pray, Lord, you would give us hearts as well. Maybe a church to seek and say that which was lost, that we might rejoice genuinely over the sinner that repents, knowing that in heaven that causes much great joy. More than ninety-nine. Righteous church kids who need no repentance. God, I pray You'd give us that grace. Give us the patience to deal with those who come into our midst like that. Give us a heart for the lost, O Lord. Amen.